0: on my way home from that journey my phone started going crazy and i'd gone from what i thought was a really big following which i remember so clearly it was about 375 people that were following me and i went to just under 4000 in about an hour
1: welcome back to series 2 of the marketing hustle where we chat with the founders and starting teams behind some of my favorite brands I'm Lottie, founder of The Coffee Club, which is a community for entrepreneurial marketers. We're a bit biased, but we think our gang are doing some of the best marketing on shoestring budgets. This week, I chatted to Olivia Wallenberg, founder of Olivia's Kitchen, who are mixing things up with free-from Treats. Livia's the face of the brand, and her willingness to put herself in front of the camera has been integral to building a reach of nearly 156,000 seriously engaged followers. I absolutely loved having the conversation to get up close and honest with Livia about our experiences of being founders. I kind of know the story, but I sort of want to hear it in your words, and I want to hear specifically About the first customer and the 10th customer and the 100th customer. How did it
0: start? Of course. So I love talking about the early days because I kind of still get a thrill from the early days of like when I had the idea to first like ever selling the product. So it happened very, very quickly. I was actually living. At my parents, which is where I am now, because I've moved back home while I'll, whilst I'm um renovating my new house. So it actually now like every day I things here that remind me of those early days of Livia's. Um, but essentially, I had been doing I had been studying neuroscience for five years and was very much committed to pursuing a career in pediatric neuropsychology. so very niche. Um, I really thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But in my last year of studying, I really began to doubt whether that was the right thing for me. I spent that last year at um, Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is connected to UCL, which is where I was doing my master's. And I just wasn't, in all honesty, like cut out for the world of medicine. I just didn't have thick enough skin for it. And I was really affected by the things... That I was seeing day in day out so I started to question whether that was for me and then at the same time I was diagnosed with intolerances to pretty much everything under yeah. <laughs> so like it was a nightmare for me because I had always just been such a food lover and really kind of like I have to admit like I judged people who went to a restaurant and they were like can I have this <laughs>
1: We've all been that that. person. I think it's
0: it's nice to really be honest. I had no time for that person before this. And then suddenly, overnight, like I had been diagnosed with intolerances to wheat and dairy, but also things like e numbers, like additives and preservatives. So I couldn't have like chewing gum anymore, for example. Like I couldn't eat anything that I actually really loved. And the thing that I really loved were those kind of like frosted cupcakes and jam donuts <laughs> yeah. and really really indulgent treats and so when I was told I couldn't eat them anymore I was like well this isn't life like yeah. what is, what is life going to be and I really struggled I would say that like for the first six to eight weeks after diagnosed with those intolerances I felt like I went into this deep dark depression of like what am I going to do with my life? I like, don't think that neuroscience is for me. I can't eat anything that I want to anymore. I can't go on a date because I'm the most awkward person ever to, to go to a restaurant with. And it was all just a bit like what what's happening. And I was at a real crossroads. And that's when I had the idea for Livias to create a company that was all about sweet indulgence, um, never, ever compromising on taste, but only using the best of the best ingredients um never with any wheat never with any dairy so completely plant-based and always natural Mm. and I had this idea and I started going to shops like Whole Foods and Planet Organic and shops that I had never really gone to before Mm. and I saw that there were products like energy bars and protein balls um but I didn't really want to buy them and dunk them into my cup of tea and then none of them felt kind of decadent and nostalgic and I saw that there was a real gap for what I was thinking of doing and so decided pretty much overnight to fill that gap, told my parents that I was leaving neuroscience behind and that I had this idea for a food business and did they support it and they better do because I was living at home and I was just amazingly lucky in the fact that I had two parents who were completely supportive and they had my back and they were like, this actually sounds really great. This is really fun, and um, you can start kind of doing everything from here, and we'll see how it goes.
1: At that point, you were envisaging a big commercial business.
0: <laughs> it's really funny when I get asked that question. Listen, like I've always been someone who's ambitious. So when I was doing like my neuroscience degree, for example, like I always wanted to be the top neuroscientist. Like I didn't, I didn't ever want like. I didn't ever believe in being mediocre so I think as soon as I had the idea for the company I was like oh and this could actually be really big Mm. and spent quite a lot of time in America and I'd seen you know there were brands like RX Bar for example and Lara Bar that were all about um creating treaty style products but with natural ingredients and they were flying like RX Bar that's um, now being sold to Kellogg's, for example, I could see that there was that trajectory. And I was, yeah, I was very much like, yeah, I could do this. But I think in the early days, it was more like, uh, how am I going to get a logo made? <laughs> I had no idea about anything because my, I had no experience in food nor in business. So I couldn't have started more from that ground zero point. And, but yeah, I, I, I did always think if this can be a real thing, I mean, I will work so hard to make this a real big commercially led company, but had no idea what it actually involved. And so kind of from day one, I started experimenting with some recipes, had no idea really how to bake in this new way. I'd been used to like buttercream icing and I couldn't eat that anymore, so What was I going to do? Started looking at various blogs and plant-based in America was really, it was quite up and coming, but here it was very niche. Like quinoa was just becoming a thing here. Um, But a lot of the time you'd say quinoa to someone here and they'd be like, what is this quinoa type thing (laughs) that you're talking about? So I was really kind of leading the way in this plant-based sector. And that wasn't easy. I think a lot of people would be like, oh, that was amazing that you were one of the first people who was playing in this field. But it wasn't easy at all. Because when I started talking to branding agencies, for example, or um, the first buyers I ever got in contact with, they were like, oh, is this really going to be a a thing? Or is it going to be a fad? Um, And not a lot of people believed in the concept from day one. And so I had that hard job of proving to people that this really was going to be a lifestyle and plant-based living was here to stay and that there was nothing faddy about it. So really from having the idea to launch, it's quite crazy, but it was about 11 weeks. I was a no one, obviously, with without a brand, without a product. And I started an Instagram page because it's the only way that I could really promote what I was doing and what I was planning to launch and it was Instagram really that just leveraged the whole company I I didn't have any budget to do any traditional marketing so no advertising or um, any kind of even like big send outs to influencers and stuff I couldn't do any of that so in the early days before I even launched a product it was all about building up Instagram getting my name out there and that was me going out with my parents at about 5am in the morning every single morning just delivering some ideas of products that I had had to press houses, influencers who weren't even really called influencers at that time because that was still quite a a new thing seven years ago but people who had like 50 to 100,000 followers on Instagram for example I would find out their address and deliver products to them my parents would drive me all around the country so I could just like deliver everything and anything to them and that's how I started like building up my Instagram following and it was one day that I delivered some products to Vogue's head office um, just left them with the receptionist being like, please, can you just get this up to Vogue and I'll forever be grateful. And they were like, yeah, we get deliveries all the time, so this will go with like the hundredth delivery that's come today. So I was like, okay, fingers crossed. And on my way home from that journey, my phone started going crazy. And I'd gone from what I thought was a really big following, which I remember so clearly it was about 375 people that were following me. Um, I was really proud of that I remember so clearly being really proud of that number and I went to just under 4,000 in about an hour and it's because Vogue had picked them up the products up and they were like what are these these look delicious and I dropped them crumbles which were our first product and Vogue put on their official Instagram page oh my god not often we get a delivery that we want to post about and shout about like this but some girl has just posted asked uh, us the most incredible delivery of crumbles and they are wheat free, they're dairy free, and they're made with just all natural ingredients. Like girls, this is what life is all about. A dessert that actually can be good for you. And it all Really started happening from there, I would say. So I used that post (laughs) for about two years onwards. (laughs) I really, really, really utilized that post um, and that endorsement. And I copied and pasted it into every email I then sent to like Selfridges and Uh and Whole Foods. And that's really how I got the listings in those high end independents that I got. So Selfridges had been ignoring me for a while. But when I posted about, when I sent them an email saying, look, even Vogue has endorsed me, that's when they were like, let's um, get a meeting in. Let's see what you're all about. You've harassed us now for the last six weeks or so. Let's bring you in. Had a meeting with them. Um, They loved the products. They loved that Vogue has endorsed us and that Mm. other people were starting to as well. And they were like, when you're ready we're ready we'll we'll launch with you so i was like oh my god and that was so really like i said it was 11 weeks from having the idea of livia's to then launching in selfridges with our first product which was crumble and that's how it all really happened
1: that's phenomenal feels like you skipped such a moment of like there's no market stall, there's no, it's
0: like straight. Oh no, I didn't do anything like that, there are so many people who I know, like amazing founders of food businesses, who were like, I had this idea, so then I took it to this market stall, and then people seemed to be really buying it, so then I went to a bigger market stall, I didn't do any of that, (laughs) I kind of like, through that whole process was like let's kitchen let's table to Vogue to itself again. yeah exactly let's just get it into store and and really like Selfridges I always say was they they championed us from yeah the beginning so even though like I you know when I went to go and see them with the product even the products that I had sent to Vogue it's funny when you look back at what I actually sent them like crumbles in little aluminium um tins that i had bought from like a catering company like nothing was branded i didn't have a logo at that point i didn't i i didn't know what the packaging was going to be but it didn't really matter because people loved the product yeah. and so once selfridges confirmed the listing that's when i started thinking okay i'm gonna have to get branding done i gonna have to think about the packaging or like what is a crumble going to even be packaged in and i had no idea about food legislation and what were the legalities around actually selling food from your parents kitchen and how did all of that work and how was I going to produce the crumbles to actually make sure that there was enough and deliver them on time there were so many like kind of like operational things that I then had to start thinking about but the marketing side like the Instagram the social media was always this like halo around the product and the operational side and, and the marketing and social media was always the part that I loved the most.
1: Mm. And you've grown an Instagram following from that 4,000, which must have felt like you'd lit, like that was it. I, <laughs> I, like can, the over, yeah.
0: I can literally take over the world with 4,000 people following me.
1: <laughs> What's the strategy been from that 4,000 to the 150,000 you're on now?
0: So what I will say is for people listening when I started Instagram it was very different Mm. to how it is today and I I do feel for people who are starting a brand today it's not to say that you can't grow from zero to 150 in a few years like how we did but it's harder now because of the algorithms and the fact that you have to like kind of pay to get what you want with Instagram when I started it was It was very, very authentic and all about natural content. And there was no way to kind of pay for audiences in the same way that you can now. And, you know, like advertising and targeting certain audience groups, that just wasn't a thing back then. But what I've always really believed in is being authentic and being consistent they're like those two things on social media are key so that people always know what your brand is about what your mission is what your purpose is what your promise is um so I think what made sorry what made us different on social was people were coming onto Instagram but it was all about being quite like glossy and aspirational whereas I'm not I'm you'll see from this like I'm just I'm not really one of those people who believes in like covering up all of the hard times and so our Instagram became really quite raw and authentic so when I was launching a product for example and things would go wrong in the factory when we once had them or even when we were in my parents kitchen I would share those hard times and I would invite people to be part of this journey with me so through all the highs but also the lows and I think that's what got people really invested in the brand because it wasn't just a brand it was a personal story and it was a young woman who had a dream who was like, I'm going to try and make this happen, but it's really not going to be easy all the time. So come with me and experience all of these ups and these downs. Mm -hmm. And not a lot of people were doing that at the time. And so I was kind of showing the personal side of it, like the entrepreneurial side of it. But then I was also starting to become really brave and bold with the actual recipe development, that I was doing and started sharing all of these amazing looking recipes that I was creating in my parents kitchen and people loved that kind of raw organic content and it was never glossy I would never get like a tablecloth and a you know a studio light to make the food that I was making look really good never anything like that it was always done kind of in the corner of the kitchen but people loved that you could see that I had an idea for something I then whipped it up in a bowl and then look what it comes out as and it was so enticing and indulgent and people started following us not just for the products but also for the recipes and so I built on that and built a really successful blog online which started getting like hundreds of thousands of hits each month and it all really just started from there and I think a lot of people ask me all the time, like, is it hard work or is it luck? And it's really both. Like I was, I was lucky that I had the idea when I did because Instagram, like I say, was, it was, it was easier to build a brand on Instagram at that time, seven years ago. And you didn't have to worry about the algorithms in the same way that you did. And I was also lucky that there was space in the market. I had this idea and there was a gap and, I, I was lucky that I had the support around me and kind of people really spurring me on to be that person to fill it. So it's a real combination of both. But definitely social media without it, I don't think that we would have had a brand or gotten any of the listings that we have today.
1: No, and that's so, that's so clear in your day one story. And I think yeah. it's so true for you as a brand today
0: it's an incredibly
1: personal brand you've built like it's got your name on the packet and as you say your Instagram is a story of your highs and lows
0: yeah how have you found that generally when I look at it over the seven years I think it's been one of the parts that I've loved the most Mm. actually being able to share my journey and that it's kind of like why you do what you do, being Mm. able to create a community and be able to actually help people through telling the truth, I think is an incredible thing to be able to be proud of. And, um, you know, not a lot of people are truthful and raw in their storytelling. Um, And I've always found that it, is so important for our brand. Our brand is all about being real. It's it's set up by real people. It's about using real ingredients. And without that storytelling part and without the real people behind it, I just don't think that we would have what we have. Mm -hmm. And in the last, I would say, like two years or so, so I kind of made the decision to separate out my personal Instagram to the brand's Instagram and there were kind of a few reasons behind that but what it's meant is that I've actually in a way like personally felt a little bit more detached from the brand And one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is how to bring that back, like Mm -hmm. how to make sure that that personal element isn't lost from Livia's even when we grow. Um, And that's not to say that it will always be me because the future, I guess, is big and bright and unknown in terms of, you know, will we sell one day? I would like to definitely. And what that means for the brand in terms of like, will there always be me promoting it? not necessarily but what I would always like there to be is like a person someone telling a story and someone telling a real and truthful story and I just want to make sure that that's never lost and it's not always easy like putting your face to camera and talking about the fact that some really hard things have happened and you know during COVID for example I was really quite honest about the fact that you know we had to make some redundancies and That was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. Mm. Um, But I spoke about that and I was open about it. And I want to make sure that that's something that we continue to do. So even though we're a food brand, I also want to be a brand that people go to for business inspiration. So it's kind of about keeping that balance. But I feel lucky that I'm able to do it because like you said, like the power of storytelling is, is huge and not all brands are able to do that and especially bigger brands. So I think that's something that we have on the bigger brands um, and we should make the most of all the time.
1: Absolutely. What advice would you have to someone thinking we don't do good storytelling and we need to?
0: Well, I think storytelling doesn't always have to be about a personal story. Like i I like telling a personal story and I liked saying about like the hard times as well as the good times, but storytelling can come in different forms and like, you know, for a brand, for example, let's, you know, another free from brand, the storytelling can come out about the ingredients that you use, for example, and why they're different to other ingredients that the bigger brands use. And it can be about the purpose and the promise and what the brand is all about and the charities that the brand supports etc cetera, etc cetera. it doesn't always have to be about one person if the founder or the business doesn't have that one person that they want to kind of be promoting but it, it storytelling is just constantly so important on social and that content that helps you know every single post should go back to what it is your brand is about. So when someone is scrolling, it's like, oh, that's recognizable as that brand because of X, Y, and Z.
1: Okay, so if we put Instagram
2: to one side, yeah. which I know is like, a, <laughs> it's like try and squeeze past it because it's so important in terms of yeah. where you built your brand.
0: What else has worked for you? Well, it's a really interesting question. We haven't really done that much more in terms yeah. of marketing. So when people say, um, you know, what's your marketing budget and where are the main areas of spend? Most are our spend is on social. And um, when you're
2: spending on social, that is content creation, that is promoting content, where's that money going?
0: Yeah, exactly. So we'll be doing things like, so in early days, it was kind of me doing all the content and then I had an intern and then that team kind of grew. So so we've always prioritised content creation um we we didn't we re- we haven't really spent anything on facebook and instagram in terms of like advertising up until autumn last year mm. so we we did the first like 6 years not putting a penny really behind any advertising and then when we wanted to start pushing our own d2c channel more the advertising was really key for that. So you had to start driving people to your online platform more. So that's where we've started to invest and grow. And then of course, like traditional retailer marketing. So, you know, looking at promotions and retailer couponing and samplings or this shelf fins, for example, to capture people's attention. We've done bits and bobs of that but really not all that much like when we have an announcement when we want someone to go to store because we're running a really fun promotion or a competition it's all through social that we get our that word out there so in terms of like above the line campaigns we've never done anything like that they're hugely expensive and we're we're kind of in the position where our companies just run without having to do that. So until we want to really take it to the next step, we've held back on doing such big campaigns.
1: So it really is a story of doing one thing really, really well. Which yeah. I think is so
2: it's so important to like dwell on that because you're right you know at your level your marketing mix doesn't need to be complicated it's about using one channel effectively understanding that you have internal strength like what you what you guys are good at yeah and, and resourcing that like making your super strength as focused and as consolidated as possible
0: yeah exactly i think it's really easy for companies to start and to be told you know marketing should be 10% of revenue and in that mix there's going to be retailer led digital led and in that there's going to be 50 different activities that come under each thing but you spread yourself so thin Mm -hmm. and like you said like in my mind like we've always had this platform where we can reach you know at any one time over 150,000 people when we make an announcement so why not constantly use that tool and it's not to say that that will be the plan forever and when we really want to start moving the dial and changing things up a little we are you know things change as well like Instagram the face of Instagram is changing and yes it's not it's not always going to be what it is today so we're always going to have to adapt and be agile but for now we don't we haven't found that we've needed to do those sorts of really big campaigns.
2: It makes total sense. What structure does it take to get the best out of Instagram? How's your team set up?
0: So um, there's myself. And then we have a um, brand manager, essentially, who has been with our company for many years, who knows the brand inside out. And because I know that she kind of understands everything that we're about. I trust her entirely with social. Like it takes a while to get someone to that point, but I own social and so does she. So we kind of like split it. Um, So for example, if someone asks a question on Instagram, you'll either get me or you'll get her answering it. So we've never outsourced it to Mm -hmm. an agency. Um, for a brand like ours, which is all, it's very personable and authentic. I, I don't know how you really could outsource social to an agency, but it does work for other brands really, really well. It's just, it's not really in our model. So between us, we kind of manage the whole thing, but it's its definitely not to say that as we get bigger, we won't need more people kind of like marketing execs and pe- content creators to help us to keep the buzz up yeah because as you referenced earlier when
2: you said it in like a kind of offhand way like oh how do I get the products made at scale and how do I make sure they arrive at the right place like there is a whole lot more than an Instagram feed to this food and drink business like for you to get you know that that customer who sees something on your feed to have a product in store is vast so you must spread so thin
0: yeah, I think that's kind of why I love talking about the early days because the early days were much more simple. And in those early days, I was able to focus on brand and product and innovation. And really for me, those are the things that keep me going. Like if I could innovate and talk about the branding and packaging and like how we're going to market it all all day, every day, I would. But just like you said, you know, growing a company from you know, that first £3.50 crumble that I ever sold into a multi-million pound company, I can't do the things that I was doing in those first few years. So now my time is spread between, yes, I do social sometimes, but not nearly as much as I would like to. And it's about finance meetings and board meetings and speaking to my chairman and speaking to factories and looking at supply chain and how we can you know reduce some of the complexities and it's there's a lot and as well like you know pretty much every year since I started I've done a big fundraising so and which is a
1: huge project no one knows how much
0: work that is yeah I mean I could talk for hours about fundraising especially like fundraising as a sole female founder it's there are so many different things that I would love to kind of give people advice on and fundraising is definitely one of them because when you start a business especially if you're like me and you're really young and you don't have experience you kind of just think oh you start a business and because there will be a good product and you'll market it in the right way you will instantly become profitable and it will pay for itself and you'll be able to reinvest and it's not always like that (laughs) at all. You can have a really successful business, but sometimes you you grow too quickly to have the profit to support that growth. And so you have to keep on fundraising. And that has definitely been a, a big challenge for us because I've done it a few times now and I've done it always kind of by myself. And so when I'm going through a fundraise, I'm much less available to do the things that I actually really want to do like the social media and the branding and thinking about new product development so it yeah it's difficult as as you grow you as a founder and a ceo you you have to spread yourself a, a lot more thinly but it's about making sure that you keep on doing the things that you love because you have to bring it back to why you started in the first place
2: Mm.
1: that comes back to the conversation we were having before you know whether it's social podcast what what you build into your week that reminds you what this is all for and it's like building up your own energy it's like pragmatic decisions that say I'm going to invest in this for an hour because it'll make my next four hours of finance meetings (laughs) I'll bring a better me to that because I give myself a treat
0: yeah it's exactly that
1: yeah the art of managing energy I completely get it
0: (laughs) What what do you wish
1: you'd known about brand building? I think a lot of a lot of the journey feels like it's all gone really
0: well. <laughs> I think I need another hour if you feel like. Okay, that. we can come. We can come back to episode
2: two of.
0: <laughs> yeah, if this if this is telling people that it's, it's only just gone well and there's never been any challenges and I haven't done a very good job <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> because I actually think like there've been there've been more challenges I think than there have been good times and I I think prob probably every founder would say the same thing like I listened to um how I built this by mm. by Raz yeah, obsessed. obsessed and I think I'm obsessed with it because I love hearing that other founders are struggling too and yes. I know that's really sadistic
1: it's like a kind of negative voyeurism like you just yeah it's <laughs> the whole copycat <laughs> principle as soon like, as you hear someone else say so
0: reassured that people are having a really shitty time too (laughs) so it really like you know it's easy to skim past like seven years and be like oh this is how it started this is how I got the first listing and this is how I first got into Tesco and talk about all those really really good like you know monumental times but actually all the things in between are really difficult Mm. and there are so many things that I wish I had known before you know one of them I I mentioned before that we were one of the brands who we we started leading in this plant-based space and what I hadn't anticipated was quite how like crowded it would become so quickly Mm. and I think had I if I could have done things differently I would have raised so much money right at the beginning to be able to grow a lot faster the kind of land grab before, exactly. yeah exactly that because what I actually ended up doing and although a lot of people will listen and they'll look at our growth and be like wow you grew so quickly it's amazing that you got listings and in, re- in major retailers so quickly and you grew to you know multi-million pound business in just a few years and Yes, you can absolutely look at it like that. But I think had I done things differently, we could have gone from zero to 15 million in just a few years. And we would have established ourselves as, yes, this is the brand doing this. Not just Mm. one of the brands, but the brand. And that's Mm. what I want to be, the brand. So I think um, there's a real big learning in how quickly do you want to grow and what funds and, and what kind of team do you need from the early days to facilitate that growth and there's a, that big question again of what it actually is your end goal do you want to sell do you want to get it to be a lifestyle business and everyone will have a different objective um but for me I really would have liked to have grown it a lot faster a lot quicker um so that's definitely one thing I wish I had known I think in terms of like the actual brand I'm really I'm really happy about the fact that it's named after someone and you know our icon is an apron and the apron represents that there's a person behind the brand and that it all started like in someone's kitchen and look where it is today and over time we've evolved like the logo um so that it's not as kind of like old school kitschy as it as it was right at the beginning um and now it's like a lot bolder and much more recognizable but again I think that it's okay to change as you grow but actually keeping to something and making sure it's consistent is really key too so there are some brands out there for example like who are constantly changing their logo changing their like aesthetics feels of their packaging for example and I think that that confuses the customer and so I think that like had I had this vision of where I wanted to be today right at the beginning I would have made our brand look how it does today right then but you it's it's very difficult to know but
1: you can't beat yourself up for being a person you wasn't yeah
0: no of course but like to answer your question of like Mm. what would I what do I wish I had known then that I know now? I think it's just about really understanding what the ambition of the company is from very, very early on. And I think that's where I wasn't so great. You know, like I just, how you identified it, it all just happened and it happened so quickly. And I didn't write a business plan for the first four years, pretty much. I, I, I was just going and it was all moving so quickly that I never sat down and actually thought where am i taking this and i think that if i were to mentor someone now who is starting a business i'd say like what do you want from this and it's okay for it to be well i just want it to be a lifestyle business and i want it you know to make a really comfortable salary from it and that's it or i want it to be a hundred million pound company and i want to sell it in five years and have an exit strategy whichever way is fine in all the things in between, but identify what it is that you want from the beginning. Yeah,
1: and I think, just to build on that, I think identify it and don't allow yourself any loose language. So yeah. I got as far as I want a lifestyle business, and only very recently have I said to myself, a lifestyle business, which means these numbers, <laughs> this lifestyle, like, I think it's it's easy to, to, to leave ambition too woolly.
0: I completely um, agree. Like, actually, like, contextualise it. Like, put, make sure that you're really clear on what those objectives yeah. are.
2: And I'm make thinking. them like a
1: KPI. you would never let your team have KPIs that were like, sell more stuff. Yeah, <laughs> You'd be like, <laughs> like, how much more? By when? No, Do exactly. that to your own KPIs. It's yes. not acceptable to say like it's a North Star, it's fine. And it it doesn't allow you to make decisions against it if it remains really loose.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's never too late. You know, like we're at a point now where I'm looking at what does the next year, three years, five years look like? And I'm actually putting numbers against that as well as talking about like actually, you know, the big picture. Um, And it's never too late to do that. Even we're in our seventh year now and I'm kind of only just, really thinking about exactly what those revenue numbers and profit numbers are going to be kind of over the last few years like I said like in the first few years I definitely wasn't thinking in that way and so it's really helping to shape my every single day and every single decision that I make now because I have that set plan and it it really helps I'm not talking about like an onerous business plan that is 20, 30 pages long, one page with mm. your key mission and your key objectives will count for so much. Mm. That
1: is a wise final word. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good reminder to me to take some time to do that. And then um, final question. What is one thing that you need help with that this audience might be able to support you on?
0: Oh my gosh. What do I need help on? You know, I think that there's definitely something in me since COVID. And I actually did um, another podcast a few weeks ago like, talking about this, but like personally how I've been affected by the pandemic and the fact that our business was really significantly hit by the pandemic, um, th- like the consequences of that. And one of them has been like my self-confidence in the fact that I think I was like on this journey of growth And I was, I felt really quite resilient and I felt like, oh, I can kind of conquer the world. And then COVID hit and the business was really hit and I had to make really, really difficult decisions and the process of making those decisions and the people side of things and not being with my team and just the whole package of like isolation and quarantine it really affected me and my confidence and so Mm. i'm going through this kind of process at the moment of like how do i build my confidence back up like how do i hold my head high again considering we've had like a really difficult 18 months i found it a lot easier to talk on instagram for example when things were going well and that kind of defeats the whole point of our brand because, actually, like I said at the beginning, like we're all about being real, and so I need to, I need to somehow build my self confidence back up, and I'm struggling with that, and I don't know as well if it's like I'm pregnant, and I don't know if it's hormones, and like being a woman, like it's really hard being a woman. So if anyone can help mm. on the fact that I'm a woman, I love that. <laughs>
1: And 100% of our listeners
0: will be women. And yeah, I mean, if anyone can help with the facts so of just like, you know, it's been a really, really, really hard 18 months and I'm now six months pregnant. And it's like the hormones and the emotions. And there's just, there's a lot to deal with. And I think um, that's really the honest answer at the moment. Like, it's my self-confidence and it's about like being reassured that actually like, I can do this, I could build things back up, and I can achieve my goals and the plan, because that sometimes at the moment, like my confidence just feels like it's been knocked and I just don't, I don't have the belief that I can. And so I guess it's like how to build that confidence that I need to be able to achieve what I want to.
1: Thank you for such an honest and vulnerable answer. I think as someone who feels a lot of what you feel I think the only thing that keeps me going some days is the knowledge that I can simultaneously have no confidence and have total belief I can do it all yeah and if I can kind of just live with both of those things being true then I get through it And, and maybe you know maybe this idea of building it up and being fully confident is actually just a kind of misnomer and and how how are we meant to ever feel like that
0: yeah I completely agree I don't think that anyone ever really does but it's about having like that almost like the ammunition just to go for it anyway and I think that that's what I need to find again okay we can
1: help you with that and from everything we've heard today like you should have it by abundance but I also I also get that it has to come from you and ultimately you know 150,000 people on Instagram can tell you that you're nailing it but it's not gonna
2: yeah (laughs) it's not gonna make
1: it feel different on that like bleak morning
0: yeah exactly
1: well thank you so much that was such a joy
0: thank you so much for having me I've loved it and now we're out of my day where I've been doing uh, an operation See, he
2: doesn't <laughs>
0: so well feel better. All right, that was such a joy.
1: Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this chat, please give us a follow where you're hearing, share with a pal, and give us a search at www.thecoppyclub.co.uk. We have tons more advice, tactics, and strategies and events to get you stuck in. Next week, we chat with Thomas Adams, founder of One Piece, the Norwegian company you won't have heard of but are a worldwide phenomenon with customers including Justin Bieber and the Kardashians. This honestly is one of the best conversations I've ever had and I am so excited for you to learn too how Thomas kicked off affiliate marketing and got attention in the most innovative ways. There is so much to take away from that conversation.